Ephesians chapter four, beginning with verse one, reading to verse three here now, the reading of God's holy word. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated, friends. And would you join me once more in prayer? Father, we need your spirit in this hour to uh, illuminate our hearts to the truths in your word. The same spirit who inspired the scriptures is the spirit who illuminates it into our hearts. So give us eyes to see and ears to hear, to receive your word as you speak to us, build us up, encourage us, sharpen us, challenge us, and then send us out. Lord, do this into your highest glory, we pray and we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The longest recorded prayer of Jesus is that found in John 17. And in John 17, Jesus is about to go to the cross. He knows he's going to be crucified for the sins of man. And while in the garden, as he is praying, he prays about unity. He prays for the unity of his people in light of the coming cross because he knows that it's through the cross that his people are going to become one. Now, by dying for our sins and being united to Jesus, Jesus then does this marvelous work of uniting us to one another. That our vertical union with Christ then leads to our horizontal union with one another. And there's no version of the gospel in which you are united to Jesus, but you're not united to his people. And there's no version of the gospel in which you are united to his people and you are not united to Jesus. And it's with that in mind that Paul writes in verse three, that we should all strive to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. You see, Paul's exhortation here is to maintain this unity, not create this unity, not achieve this unity. Why? Because the unity is already ours in Christ. Christ has united us together. The call of God's people then is to walk in a manner that is consistent and faithful to his blood-bought, blood-secured unity. Now, why do I want to talk about this today? Well, right now in our country and in the capital C church, Uh, there is a polarization happening where people have really, I believe, unhelpfully embraced an us versus them mentality. And this has happened on numerous issues. We can sit here and spend quite a while listing them, right? Race, sexuality, healthcare, economics, politics, immigration, the list goes on and on. And the resulting nature of that is people begin to identify themselves with, and this is the word being used around, a tribe. And a tribe often, they stand together on a whole host of issues. And what they do is they draw a line that distinguishes us from them, those who stand opposed to the things I believe and the views that I have. And when you draw this line and you belong to a tribe, it further reinforces the us versus them view of the world. You're either with us or you're with them. And in this stratified world, if you straddle or you refuse to take a side or you want to see uh, the good in both sides, you actually invite more criticism on yourself. But this uncharitable, uh, overly 
simplistic ideology of you're either with them or you're with us is problematic for Christians precisely because Christians are united to Christ and Christ himself is not divided. The body of Christ cannot be us versus them. If we're in Christ, it's just us. And just like in your physical body, when the body of Christ begins to attack itself and is divided against itself, it leads to sickness, it leads to disease. And so we need to be very conscious of this as Christians, to stand against it, to protect ourselves and guard ourselves from this kind of division. Now, having said that and promoting unity, as Paul does here in verse 3, we also need to understand this very clearly. I'm not saying Christians need to stand in agreement and united on every possible view and opinion that somebody could have about any number of issues in the world. The calling of the Christian is not for us to see every issue the same exact way. In fact, I would say that it's okay for Christians to disagree on matters that are not central to gospel doctrine. And simply put, I want to say this, I don't believe that it's unchristian to disagree. What I believe is unchristian and inappropriate is when a Christian disagrees in a way that mimics the world. You see, when you can't differentiate between two Christians disagreeing with one another and two unbelievers disagreeing with one another, that's an alarming indicator that something has gone wrong. Or put another way, when two believers are disagreeing in a way where unity is being disrupted rather than maintained, then Christ is being dishonored and his blood-bought unity trampled on. See, unity, friends, is not compromise when people don't see eye to eye with one another. That isn't the compromise of unity. Unity is compromised when not seeing eye to eye, you act in a divisive manner. And this is where Ephesians 4 comes in to help us. Ephesians 4 itself is not about disagreement, but it is about maintaining the unity of the spirit. And if we are to maintain unity of the spirit, and one of the greatest enemies of unity is division through disagreement, then this passage actually has a lot to say to us. And I want to show us then how Christians can disagree with one another in a way that is God honoring and yet maintains the unity of the spirit. So here's our gospel truth, a one sentence summary. Very simple. Christ calls us to maintain unity, not disrupt unity. Very simple. Christ calls us to maintain unity, not disrupt unity. Paul begins in verse 1 by saying, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Paul, who is in prison, who's writing to the church in Ephesus, he is urging, he's pleading, he's imploring with his audience that they walk in a certain way, a certain manner. Now, what's that manner? Well, the manner is one worthy of their calling. Earlier, what Paul had said is that you've been called into this gospel hope. You've been called into every spiritual blessing in Christ. You've been called into the riches of God's mercy. And therefore, as one who has been called to Christ, living a new spiritual uh, lives, you are then to walk according to that manner. And this is going to separate you from the world because what Paul says earlier in Ephesians 1.18 is he says, Christians are those who have had the eyes of their heart enlightened. Right? We've been brought out of spiritual darkness into spiritual light. And we are to walk according to that, which will mean that Christians walk in a manner different than the world because the world is still in darkness, still in spiritual blindness. 
And so the practices of Christian walking according to their hope and their calling in Jesus, the practices, especially in disagreement, must look different than how the world is disagreeing with one another. So how do Christians disagree, especially in an age where people are so polarized and they become enemies? How do Christians disagree with one another and maintain unity? And Paul gives us a way forward, and that's verse 2. He tells us how to walk in this manner that maintains the unity. He says in verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And so there we go. There are our four points for us. The first is this, with all humility. Unity requires that we put on humility. Now, if you read this verse, Paul doesn't go beyond this. He just says with all humility, but Paul doesn't ever, never uh, elaborate on this. He elaborates on this in Philippians 2, where if you remember there in Philippians 2, verse 2, he wrote, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, right? That's the call to unity. One mind, full accord, same love, same mind. So Paul says, this is what unity looks like. How do you maintain unity? Well, he goes on in verse three. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. You maintain this one-mindedness, this one accord with humility, meaning Christians, you're free to disagree, but never do it with arrogance, with pride. To do it with humility, as Paul shows us in verse 3 of Philippians, is to consider others above yourself. You see, when the world disagrees with one another, it often does so with arrogance and pride, where you consider in your disagreement with somebody, not only that you have the better argument, but you have the better intellect because you see the way things really are and the other person is failing to do so. And you refuse to listen to the other person because you believe they have nothing worth considering. After all, you are right and they are wrong. And as a result of this kind of posture of arrogance and pride and not humility, conversations aren't opened up, but they're shut down. Bridges aren't built, bridges are burned. And people end up talking on intercoms and not telephones. What's the difference? Well, with a telephone, you can both hear and be heard. With an intercom, you only do the talking. And this unwillingness to listen, this humility that dismisses people and their opinions and views, often before they've even finished talking, is what will disrupt unity. Now, humility then means when you listen to somebody, when you're engaging with somebody who you know disagrees with you, you listen, you lean in, and you learn. It doesn't mean you end up agreeing with them. You may still disagree, but the manner in which you do it is you listen and you lean in and you learn. And the reason is because you are putting their interest above your own. Right? That's Paul's calling to us in Christ. And the question is, how do you become this kind of humble person? How do you begin to reflect Christ's character even in the midst of heated disagreement? Well, Paul actually tells us, he shows us, in fact, the ultimate expression of humility as he continues in Philippians 2, when in verse 8, he talks about Jesus who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
right? Right before this in verse five, he said, put on the mind of Christ, which was this, that Christ didn't consider himself better than others or more important or superior, even though in every way he truly was better and more important and superior than us. Rather, Christ humbly laid down his rights in order that through his death, we might have life. He thought about, him, he thought about us before he thought about himself. Even when we were in our sin, deadly wrong. And so then to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which God has called us means that we preserve unity by being humble, even when we disagree. One of the most powerful and beautiful stories I've ever heard was that of R.C. Sproul. Darcy Sproul is a reformed uh, pastor, scholar, author, theologian. I mean, he, he's everything you want, would want to be. And R.C. Sproul often taught uh, what some people would call big God theology. It's a view that God is sovereign overall. He's so sovereign that uh, in his election, that God did not choose you based on foreseen faith. He didn't consider whether or not you would believe in the future and choose you. Rather, he chose you on his own volition, of his own accord. And in fact, you know, one of the first books of R.C. Sproul I read in college was A Chosen by God, in which he espouses this great book if you ever want to reach it or read it. And R.C. Sproul, who believes in this sovereign electing grace of God, he was preaching at a conference and there was a Q&A session and somebody raised their hand and asked uh, Dr. Sproul this question. They say, Dr. Sproul, do you believe when you go to heaven, you'll see Billy Graham? Now, if you know who Billy Graham is, if you don't know who he is, uh, Billy Graham is probably the most famous American evangelist of the 20th century. Um, but Billy Graham, because he was an evangelist and he was always offering the gospel, his theological position uh, emphasized more of human free will. You know, this idea that, that God looks at our future and he sees whether or not we would believe. And depending on whether we would believe or not, he then elects us. So it's a conditional election, very different than R.C. Sproul, significantly different. And so this question was asked to Dr. Sproul and Dr. Sproul didn't take, he didn't have to think about it. This is what he responded. No, I don't believe I'll see Billy Graham in heaven. And the whole congregation just <laughs> gulped. There was a collective gasp, but he did not stop there because Dr. Spohl continued, no, I will not see Billy Graham in heaven because Billy Graham will be so close to the throne of God and I will be so far away from the throne of God that I would be lucky to even get a glimpse of him. You see, R.C. Sproul, who left his legacy of teaching God's electing sovereign grace was at total odds with Dr. Graham. Complete opposite ends of the spectrum. Polar opposites, we would say. And yet, even in this major disagreement, R.C. Sproul had the humility to make such a claim. A mark of the world in our disagreeing with one another is always arrogance and pride. But the Christian who is conformed into the image of Jesus begins to disagree with humility, seeking to maintain unity. Well, Paul goes on and here's the second thing. He says, and gentleness. Unity also requires gentleness. Christians should be the most gentle of all people because the Christ we follow is a gentle Christ. And one of the most famous uh, words that Jesus says, he gives both an invitation and a description of himself. This comes from Matthew 11, where Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. 
Our very Christ is a gentle Christ. So imagine what it would look like among Christians when they disagreed if they were marked with this kind of gentleness. To the world, it would appear confusing and surprising. Because to the world, when Christians disagreed, it would look more like friendly conversation than battling enemies. In fact, more than friendly conversation, it would look like family conversation. Because that's what we are in Jesus, brothers and sisters in Christ. And we need to be aware that the goal of something doesn't trump the manner in which we get there. God cares about both. The reality is the pressing issues of our time, anything you go on the news and you look at, those things are very, very important. Very, very important. But never so pressing to God that losing Christ's likeness in the midst of it justifies it. And I don't know about you, and a lot of this is spoken just out of personal experience. Uh, The reason that I'm tempted to jettison gentleness, to get rid of jettison, is because I feel this pressure that I have to choose a side. The world is saying you have to choose a side. And when you choose a side and you align with it and you adopt all of its values and beliefs and you adapt all of that, it, it continues to reinforce the us versus them mentality that will always turn conversation into argument. It'll always uh, turn what should be a dance of words to be a battle of words. Because the rules of the game we're taught is you draw the line, you decide which side you stand on, you signal your battle cry, and you attempt to bulldoze anybody who stands opposed to you. And we use those words, don't we? Opposed to us. But the way of Christ is a way that refuses to play this game. You see, when you draw the line, the reason you lose gentleness, because when you try to understand the other person, when you even attempt to cross over the line, then people start firing bullets at you. And as soon as bullets start firing at you, you lose gentleness and you adopt outrage. Why? Because you're being fired upon. And so your natural reaction is to start firing back. But outrage against a fellow believer is a response that does not maintain unity. It disrupts unity. And so rather than focusing on which side I'm standing on and which side you're standing on, if we all agree that I must stand on Christ's side, that means, therefore, I proceed in all my dealings with the gentleness with which Christ has proceeded. Consider Jesus for a moment. He secured our salvation, not with outrage and fury, but with a gentle answer. In great outrage against everyone who stands opposed to him, the holy God and all sinners who stand opposed to him, God could have opened up the heavens and poured out his wrath and his uh, judgment, his righteous anger upon all of us for our sins. But he chose the gentler way. That what did Christ do? He crossed the line. He took on humanity. He came to us an infant. He came to us clothed in frailty. He crossed the line from infinite to finite, from creator to creature. And in securing his salvation for us, he didn't do with outrage and fury and power and bulldozing, but he did in gentleness. And so when the Lord describes to us this very savior, he says in Isaiah 53, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it cheers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 
You know, Christ went to the cross like a gentle lamb for us, not slaying his enemies, but being slain by them and slain for them. And it's through Christ's gentleness that he achieved victory. You know, we try to win people over or destroy their arguments often through this kind of belligerent outrage, screaming louder, raising your tone. But the way of Christ and his victory is the way of gentleness. And so if we were to align ourselves with Christ and live according to the calling that he's given to us, we would pursue unity even in our disagreements with gentleness. Here's the third thing Paul goes on to say, with patience, with patience. Now, what does patience look like in disagreement? Again, Paul doesn't go into it here, but the apostle James is really helpful. If you look at James chapter one, verse 19, James writes, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Right? Patience means taking the time to listen to the other person uh, before you're quick to correct them and quick to respond. Uh, these days, uh, I find it in myself and I find it in others. We are so much quicker to talk. Everyone is good at talking. Very few people are good at listening. Now, one of the greatest displays of impatience that disrupts unity is not taking the time to dialogue with another person because you've already decided uh, what group or tribe that person belongs to, who all their allies are, and everything that they believe. You hear one buzzword and you assign to them everything in what you think is part of that agenda. Oh, I heard you say you believe in X, so you must also believe in Y and Z, and this is why you're wrong. And I've had this myself. I've done this, so I confess it. I've had this done to me, and so I know it's true. Which is often to talk to somebody and to have them repeat back to you what they've heard, but it being completely not what you said. And often that's found because the person doesn't have the patience to actually listen. And so I've talked to people and they say, oh, so, so, so they'll cut me off and, oh, okay, yeah, I know what you're saying. You're saying this. And I'm saying, no, I'm not saying that. What I meant to say is, and I'll talk a little more and they'll cut me off and, oh, yeah, okay, yeah. Oh, so you're saying this. And no, that's not, can, can you just let me finish? And I think that's all too often the way dialogue and conversation happens. And this is neither patient nor charitable. And the reason is because we dislike nuance. You know, it's so much easier to argue with a side than with a person, right? Because with a side, it's like, oh, I know everything you believe in because I've read all these other articles. But to argue with a person requires patience because it requires nuance and understanding and where are they coming from? What are their real concerns? It requires patient listening, requires being quick to hear and slow to speak. And again, I admit to doing this and I recognize when this happens, I am actually disrupting unity and promoting disunity rather than maintaining it. I do think that one of the clearest ways of knowing if you have been patient and actually disagreeing with somebody is when afterwards you are able to repeat back to them what they said in a manner clearer than they expressed it themselves. If you cannot do that, then you may be disrupting unity more than maintaining it. You know, in the late 1800s, um, there were two men running for prime minister of the United Kingdom, uh, William Gladstone and Benjamin Disraeli. 
and they were both phenomenal candidates. Uh, Gladstone was sharp, he was intelligent, he was bright, he was quick. Uh, Disraeli was endearing, he was personable, he was charming. And one biographer commented that the key difference between Gladstone and Disraeli was this. Gladstone uh, helped people see how important he was. Disraeli helped people see how important they were. And so there was a dinner party once, and uh, Jenny Jerome, who was actually the mother of Winston Churchill, was at this dinner, met both of them. And afterwards, in an interview um, done with her, the reporter asked, you know, what were your impressions? And here's what she said. When I left uh, that evening, uh, having sat next to Gladstone, I thought he was the cleverest man in England. But when I sat next to Disraeli, I left feeling like I was the cleverest woman in England. You see, which are you? After people talk to you, how do they leave that conversation? Do they leave feeling like they've understood you better or like they have been understood better by you? If you are quick to speak, you will have made your position clearer. If you are quick to hear, you will have understood their position clearer. Showing patience in our disagreements means not assuming things, but always seeking clarity. You say this word, what do you mean by that? Not interrupting. I'll let you finish your thought. One of the things I hate to hear because it shows that I'm impatient is when somebody says something and I interrupt and they'll say, well, I was going to say that. Well, friends, let's give the benefit of the doubt that they're going to say that, let them finish. And if they have not, then ask questions rather than assuming things about them. This kind of patience, it takes so much out of us, but remember that this is the patience by which Christ has dealt with us. You know, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. You see, isn't it true that the Lord could have been quick to speak in his word of judgment and his word of condemnation? Draw on the line, holiness, sin, you're on that sin line and therefore spoken a word of immediate judgment against us. And yet, what did he do instead? He was slow to hear our cry of repentance. You know, God's patience is what led to our salvation. If God was impatient with us, it would have led quickly to our death and destruction. And so as people who have received the infinite patience of our great God, how then can we not show that same patience even to God's own people? As we eagerly maintain unity, even in our disagreement, let us be patient, hearing one another out. For what we have in Christ is far more valuable than our disagreements. And here's the fourth and last thing that Paul goes on to say. Bearing with one another in love. Now the word bearing can be translated enduring. It can be translated tolerating. And here you need to understand tolerating. Uh, he's not, Paul is not saying you tolerate error. You tolerate heresy. You tolerate egregious sin. He's saying what you tolerate in the other believer is a weakness or a difference. And when you bear with someone another, you endure them. You don't do it simultaneously judging them, belittling them, despising them. You do it in love. And at the end of the day, bearing with one another in love is really just a practical expression of patience. That when you're talking with somebody and it becomes clear that you are not seeing things eye to eye, that you refuse to give into the temptation to simply dismiss them or write them off. I don't have patience 
for people like you. I don't want to bear with somebody who thinks that way. Because the reality is that's just too much like the world. The, the world is so quick to dismiss those they disagree with. The world is so quick to cancel those who are not a part of their agenda. The world lives in such a way where it refuses to bear with others in love. Rather, the world's agenda is I bear with those according to my convenience. Meaning what? I only bear with those I like and those I agree with. Because it takes too much time. It takes too much energy. It takes too much effort to bear with those I disagree with. I get energized when people think the same way as me. I love hearing that what I say and think is right. And I love affirming to others those same things. But to talk to somebody who disagrees with me is so much more exhausting. And so what are we tempted to do? Block them, unfriend them, don't talk to them, avoid them. And that's not bearing with one another in love. But the very movement of the gospel is that God has loved those who are not lovable. That God bears with us when we are not bearable. That he doesn't do it conditionally, but unconditionally. You know, John 3.16 is one of those famous verses. And we sometimes emphasize, I think, um, one part of it while not the other. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And of course, we all understand what this means. But what I want you to pay attention to is the order. When did God love us? And when did God send his son? God did not send his son and then choose to love us. God did not send his son to wash us of our sin, make us lovable, and then love us. God loved us even when we were unlovable in in our sin. And then he sent Jesus. He sent his son because he loved us. And if God loves you when you're unlovable, how much then, how much more then can we look at those who we think are unlovable because they disagree with us and yet love them? Because it's far too easy to love those who are lovable because they agree with you. It's far too easy to bear with those who are bearable because they agree with you. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, then we are no different than the tax collectors and the Gentiles who love those who are just like them. You see, the gospel, the very movement of the gospel gives us the power and the ability to bear with and to love those who disagree with us. Those who we find difficult, those who we find taxing, those uh, whom the world would say, you can't be friends with them. And you do it because God has loved you and God has endured you, not because it is easy and comfortable and convenient. You see, in these four ways, with humility and with patience and with gentleness and with bearing one another in love, we are able to preserve the unity that Christ has afforded for us. Now, let me close with this thought. I have found when you actually listen to somebody enough, um, the reasons that Christians disagree is because they are both trying to honor God. You know, when, when you tend to demonize another person or you turn them into an enemy, then, you know, you kind of strip away all these things from them. And so I'm the one who's trying to honor God. You're the one who is, you know, acting unchristian. But the reality is people on, on either side of any issue are trying to honor God in the things they do and the things they, they say. But here's the reality. You know, while we may disagree, um, we may debate and take different sides on a particular issue, 
no matter how you look about it, because the world constructs, you got to be on this side or this side, right? You have to be either on this side or you have to be on this side. And the world says, you know, you need to fight one another. But the reality is all Christians are all on this side and the world is on this side. You see, it's a matter of perspective. We may disagree. We will disagree with people on a whole variety of issues. But one side that we do not disagree with, one side that we are not on opposite positions on, is that we are in Christ and therefore called to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And so church, you know, it's okay to disagree. It's expected to disagree, but it's how we disagree that's going to show to the world that we are set apart for Christ. Because even when we agree more with unbelievers on certain issues, in Christ, we still have far more in common. We are united to Jesus therefore united to one another. And it's because of that, that we are eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace while we do what? Exercise humility and gentleness and patience. And we bear with one another in love. And to that end, we give God the glory. Let's pray.